Please turn with me in your Bible to the book of Acts, chapter 4. We have been working our way through this wonderful book of the birth of the early church. And last Sunday, we covered the tail end of Acts, chapter 4. And I would like to reread last Sunday's text and then read today's passage. For those who are familiar with the book of Acts, you you might know just by hearing two names what this sermon is going to be about, Ananias and Sapphira. If there is any passage in the book of Acts that should sober us and make us feel the weight of sin, this would be that passage. So, let, let me read it for you in its fullness. Acts 4, verses 32 through chapter 5, verse 16. And this is the word of the Lord. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power, the the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property, and with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and breathed his last, and great fear came upon all who heard of it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. And Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead And they carried her out and buried her beside her husband, and great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Now many signs and wonders were regularly being done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And more than ever, believers were added to the Lord multitudes of both men and women, so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. 
The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. And this is God's word to us today. Maybe you have heard, maybe you have said, and I understand the sentiments. Now, I would love to go back to the time of the early church. I would love to live during those days. I would love to be a part of that. It sounds like that is how things were supposed to be. The book of Acts is how it was supposed to be. That's how Christians were supposed to be, and things have been corrupted since then. But in the early church, that is the golden era of the history of God's people. And it is certainly true that there were tremendous things happening in the early months of the early church. Tremendous things. Radical generosity. But let us not neglect this story. Luke is summarizing what? 30 years of church history in the book of Acts. 30 years. Is he going to leave a few events out? Yeah, he cannot cover everything. And he chooses under the inspiration of the Spirit to spend 11 verses on this weighty and sobering story of the sudden, unexpected death of Ananias and Sapphira for a deliberate lie to the leadership of the church and therefore to God Himself, to the Holy Spirit. Let's refresh ourselves. I'm going to be rereading the entirety of the passage as we go, so just prepare for that. But let's refresh ourselves on some of what we saw last Sunday to set up for the story of Ananias and Sapphira. By contrast, read with me one more time here, verses 32 to 37 of chapter 4. Now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything in common. And with great power the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. There was not a needy person among them, for as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to each as any had need. Now, pause there. I I don't want to undersell what's happening in this passage. This is almost hard to fathom in real life. I want you to think about this, and I'm, I'm not saying you have to do this if this is you. I'm just saying, imagine this. You have your normal house and you have a lake house. Nothing wrong with having a lake house, it's not my point, but just listen. Imagine you've got your own house and you've got a lake house, and you see needy people in your church, needy believers of the world, missionaries in need, and not because you're forced to, not because anyone put a gun to your head and said, you must give this up, because of sheer care and love and a broken heart for others in the world, especially other believers in the world in need, you freely choose to put your lake house up for sale to get the $150,000 from that, and to give every penny of it to global needs for Christians around the world. And you do it with a joyful smile on your face that is not inauthentic. It comes out of your heart. Can you imagine that level of care for others? I'm not saying it's a sin to have a lake house. That's not my point here. My point is the kind of generosity we see is astonishing to think about in reality. As many as were owners of lands or houses sold them, brought the proceeds, and laid it at the apostles' feet, not because they had to, but because they got to, they wanted to. Now, this means that their happiness their, their, their happiness was so connected to the well-being of others around them that it was joy for them to have radically generous lives because they knew 
that yes, they were giving up something. There was real sacrifice. And yet the beneficiaries of the good deed that they would do would be so helped and their happiness and joy was so tied to the well-being of others that they were happier to have sold lands and houses and given the money to the needy than to have maintained some of these extra things and to have enjoyed them on their own. Now, don't we turn everything into legalism immediately? That doesn't mean that it's a sin to own a home or to own land or whatever it may be. But just think in our own hearts, imagine that kind of radical joy and generosity. And then remember, Luke zooms in on one example of what was happening more broadly with this man, Barnabas. Look at verses 36 and 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, that island in the Mediterranean, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. Now, Luke is a very good narrator. Now, he is inspired by the Holy Spirit, so maybe that's some cheating there, but he is a very good narrator. And Luke will frequently mention a character who is of significant importance later in the book of Acts, mention the character by name, and say some very little thing about them, and then a chapter, two chapters, five chapters later, he returns to that character. He'll do this with others later in the book. He mentions them briefly, and then he leaves. You think he's forgotten. He comes back. Remember, as Stephen is being martyred, they laid their garments at one Saul of Tarsus. Well, Saul disappears for a chapter and shows back up a chapter later, and he's the one persecuting the church, radically converted. But but Luke often will introduce major characters like this ahead of time. Barnabas will be a major character for the rest of Acts later on. But right now, he's one who sold a field and brought the money. Now, that's last Sunday. We've, we've got to get ourselves into the mind of this couple in this church. Ananias and Sapphira, we know that they were Jewish. We know that they had professed faith in Jesus as their Lord and Savior. We know that they would have been baptized as every member of this church would have done, and they joined this large church of 10,000 or more in the city of Jerusalem. Were they genuine believers? I'll be honest with you, I don't know for sure. You may have a conviction about that. I I am open to hearing more, but I'm not perfectly sure whether they are genuinely born again or not. I think genuinely born again people are capable of deliberate sin. Uh, I don't think they're capable of unrepentant, long-term deliberate sin, but I think Christians like uh, many Christians in the Bible can, can commit very serious sin in a moment. Whether they were or not, I'm not perfectly sure, but I think we can begin to get a little bit into their head in this story. What, what happens here? Well, they're part of this large body. They were also, by the way, relatively wealthy, right? I mean, they can afford to sell property and donate a lot of money. So these were wealthy members of this church. What happens? They, they look around and they see other people selling houses and property and giving, in many cases, all the money to the apostles, and they also see them getting praised for doing it, right? Barnabas gets his new name, right? He's not just Joseph, he's Barnabas. He's the son of encouragement. Uh, People are talking about the generosity of some of these people. And Ananias and Sapphira want in on that praise in the church. 
and this fits perfectly with, with the text Jerry picked for confession time, right? Doing your actions to be seen in public versus doing them genuinely not to be seen, but in, in the privacy of your heart or your own room where you pray. And they want in on the praise that people like Barnabas are receiving. And so they come up with a plan. Now let's look at it here. This is chapter 5, verse 1. That word, but, should be a sobering and frightening word given the goodness that we just saw. Now there's a contrast, but a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. And with his wife's knowledge, he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and brought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Now, just pause right here. I think this passage has been misunderstood by numerous people in the past. If all you read was that part and you just moved on quickly skimming through the rest of the passage, you would likely come to an, a false conclusion. Here's what it may sound like is happening. There was a command that everybody sell large portions of property and housing and take all the money and lay it at the apostles' feet. And the sin of Ananias and Sapphira was they did most of it, right? They sold some land and they took most of the money. Maybe it was 70% of the income. Maybe it was 75%. I don't know how much. We're not told. But they, they took a portion of the income and they kept some of it for themselves and they took the rest and they gave it to the apostles and God just strikes them dead because they didn't give everything, 100%. And so if you don't give up everything, sell everything, give everything right now, you're under the judgment of God. That would be an, a significant misinterpretation of the passage. Now, can I give you the crucial verse so that we don't misread this text? If you read it too quick, you can just miss it. Verse 4 is crucial to rightly understanding this whole story. Peter says to the husband, verse 4, talking about the land, while it remained unsold, did it not remain whose? Your own. And after it was sold, was it, the money, not at your disposal. Okay, do you see what Peter's saying? He's saying this, Ananias, no one was forcing you and no one was commanding you to sell that tract of land. You didn't have to. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? It was your land and you have the right to own property and we were not forcing you to sell it. That's step number one. He, they didn't have to sell it. Number two, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You know what that means? You didn't have to give us the money. So those two massive caveats are crucial to understand what's happening here. Number one, they, did not, they were not required to sell that tract of land. Number two, they were not required after they sold it to do what? To give all the proceeds or any of the proceeds to the apostles. When it was unsold, it was your own. After it was sold, it was at your disposal. You did not have to do this. That's not why they're in trouble. They are not in trouble because they failed to give 100% of the property to the apostles. That's, they weren't required to do it. So what is the sin of Ananias and Sapphira? Well, we've got to look very carefully here. 
Look at the end of verse 4. Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. So then he dies. They go to bury him. Look again at verse uh, 8. So this is when the wife, Sapphira, comes in. Peter said to her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, for so much. But Peter said, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? And then she dies. Now, do you see here what's going on? Here is the sin, and it, if it doesn't sound serious, it is a serious sin. Here's what's going on. They see Barnabas and others getting praised for their generosity, and they have a sense of jealousy. They want the outward praise of religious achievement in the church, but their heart is not fully in it, okay? This is why we call, you know, people say the church is full of hypocrites. Uh, there are hypocrites in the church, and this is one couple that was acting in true pure hypocrisy. Here's what they did. We want praise from people, but we don't really want God, and we don't really want to be fully generous, so what we're going to do is we are going to bow down to the idol of human praise. So, number one, they got an idol, idol of human praise, but they've got a second idol. The other idol is they also want to keep some money, so these two idols are competing with each other, and so what dies when the idol of greed and the idol of reputation collide with each other? What dies is the truth. So what do they do? They sell the property, which they didn't have to sell, and they take the money, and here's what, let's just make up a number. I have no idea how much the equivalent of the money was that doesn't tell us the amount. Let's say that they sold the field for $100,000. I have no idea if that's accurate. Let's say they sold the field for $100,000, and then they said, okay, here's the deal. Maybe even at the first, they thought they were going to give it all. Maybe. We don't know for sure. Maybe they originally thought we're going to give it all to the Lord. They sell it. They got their $100,000 cash with them, and they go, okay, you know, I don't know that we need to give all of it, so let's just give $70,000 and let's tell them that's what we sold the field for. Let's tell them we sold the field for $70,000 and then give $70,000 and we're going to keep back $30,000 and we'll never tell anybody about the $30,000. That way, it looks like we gave 100%, but we really just gave 70% and we still get to keep extra cash that we can use for other reasons. They agree together deliberately. This is a deliberate premeditated lie, and then they go to the apostles, and, and then Peter says, did you sell the land for so much? In other words, did you sell it for $70,000? And she says, yes, for so much. We sold it for that much money. And Peter says, Sapphira, you're lying to the Holy Spirit, testing the Holy Spirit, and then she falls down dead. So I, I want to I spend some time here thinking through what's going on in, in some more detail. First thing, we often have a very casual view of lying. It's very common to say, oh, lying doesn't seem like that big of a deal. Well, think of it like this. Lying is sort of like the plant or the flower or whatever you want to call it that, that grows up out of the ground, and underneath any lie, there is a root system underneath the surface. And that root system is connected to the deepest commitments of our heart, which would be an idol. So whenever I lie at any moment, if I, am, if I am lying, if I am saying something I know not to be true, and I am intentionally misrepresenting the truth and deceiving others, when I do that, and let's be honest, we have all at some point done that, when we do that, at that moment we are saying, there is something more important to me than obeying Jesus in that moment. So in that moment, I am choosing 
whether to honor Christ by seeking the truth at maybe great cost to myself, like you make a mistake at work and you own up to it, you could get in trouble. And so at that moment, you're saying, okay, I, I prefer to not get in trouble and to lie than to honor the Lord and speak the truth. At that moment, I have an idol, and the idol might be convenience. It might be not getting in trouble in some way. It might be getting a worse grade on a test than you otherwise would have gotten. It could be any number of things. And Ananias and Sapphira say, okay, we deeply want to be praised for a level of spirituality that is not actually true of us. One pastor said, imagine what would have happened if the story had gone a different way. Imagine Ananias and Sapphira maybe initially are thinking that they'll give it all, which they didn't have to do, and they sell the property, and they've got their $100,000 or however much it was, and they say, okay, they're, they're thinking about it, and they say, you know what, we really, we've got some needs with our own house right now, we, let, let's give just a portion of it, and, and let's tell everyone, let's just be honest. What if they would have gone and said to the apostles, listen, we know Barnabas and these other people have given 100% of some of the things that they have sold, and that is so admirable, and that is something we aspire to. But we're, we're not fully there yet. We haven't fully arrived at the Barnabas level of spirituality. We, we haven't quite gotten there yet, but we still want to help. And so, we're not going to give 100% of the land that we sold, but we still want to give half. And, and we're going to keep the other half for other needs with our family, but we want to give half to help the church. Listen, I bet if they would have done that, there would have been tears in people's eyes because there would have been honesty, and they weren't even, there's nothing particularly wrong with that. They would have just said, here's what's going on. They would have been honest about it. I'm sure that people would have been encouraged by their generosity, and, they, and, and it would have been wonderful. God would have still been honored. But that wasn't enough, because listen, there is a part of us, if we're, you know, if, if we've been Christians for a while, there's a part of us that does not want to admit that we have not arrived spiritually. There is a part of us that wants to act as though we are further down the field than we actually are, and so we want to sort of hide some of the flaws within us. We, we want to cover up and sort of Photoshop our own life spiritually, and we want to present ourselves as being further along, more advanced, at a further level than perhaps we actually are, in order to kind of look like we know what we're doing. And is it not difficult in the Christian life to be honest about your need of help from others. To say, I need help in this area. There is sin and idolatry lurking in this part of my life, and I want you to know that, and I need help fighting this battle, and I need help winning this battle. So, some, some practical application here. If you're a believer, I, I really hope, and I, I would encourage you, I hope you have at least one or two or three people in your life who know really what's going on in your heart and soul in the average week, in the average month. If you are struggling in some area and you're covering it up and it's not known, do you have people in your life that you love and that you trust that you give permission to come in and see the real you? Now, these people need to have two qualities in their character, among others. These people, number one, they need to deeply love you in the gospel, and number two, they need to be people who speak truth to you. They need to love you and love the gospel, and they need to be able to be honest with you even if it hurts. Okay, you know, you know that kind of combination there. Not someone who's honest 
with no gospel, and not someone who has a lot of grace but doesn't want to be honest because that's not really grace. It's Jesus came with grace and truth. Someone who has grace and truth, who is going to love you and be honest with you. I've told this many times. In college, my last two years at Tacoa Falls, I had a friend of mine who was 10 years older than me. He was my small group leader. This guy was of enormous help to me my last two years of college. I was struggling big time in college spiritually. And I would go to his apartment. I mean, I could still remember this, these cold Wednesday nights. I would go to his apartment, pull up, just me and him, and he would ask me questions. And he would probe my heart like, a, like he was, you know, almost like a surgeon. He would go and ask the tough questions. And I was like, I don't, I don't want you to ask me that. <laughs> and I would say, okay, all right, here's where I'm struggling. Like there was one big thing where I was just, I was, I was not involved in community enough. I was sort of just kind of closing myself off. And, and he confronted me. He would just speak truth to me. And then he would speak the gospel to me. And I can remember one Wednesday night, both of us in tears, kneeling on his couch in his living room, and the grace of God just lifting me back up spiritually, just to help me keep going that next week. I hope you have people in your life where you can call them any time of the week and you can say, I am struggling with X right now. I'm struggling with this right now. And I need you to pray for me. I need you to help me. I need you to check on me. I need you in my life to help me. We, We must have those people. Very often, the desire to look strong is going to be a threat, and we have to be okay to look weak and needy in the arms of the Lord Jesus. I need your help in order to continue on. So, let's continue here with Ananias and Sapphira. Look, look how significant some of these issues are that, that are mentioned here. Verse 2, and, and I'll admit, it's just hard to see, With his wife knowledge, he kept back for himself the proceeds and brought only part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. He kept back. Okay, now I would never have known this, but commentaries mention this. The the Greek word here, kept back, is only used, I think, two other times in the entire Greek Bible. It's the Greek translation of the Old Testament and the Greek New Testament. Only two other times, I believe, in the whole Greek Bible. One of them is in uh, Paul's letters where it talks about stealing money, it talks about pilfering, don't be, a, don't be pilfering, stealing. But the only other use of this word comes from Joshua chapter 7, verse 1, which uh, if, if you'll turn there just for a moment, Joshua judges Ruth, jo- uh, Joshua chapter 7, I won't read the whole story, but just to give you a sense of what happened here, the people of Israel have just gotten into the promised land. They have uh, just defeated uh, Jericho, the walls of Jericho had fallen, and the Lord wants all these goods to be devoted entirely to Him, which means you can't have these spoils of war here. And Joshua 7, 1, but the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things, for Achan, the son of Carmi, the son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, uh, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Now, th- the word is used in that verse, he took for himself, he held back, he, he stole some of these items, and he hid them, remember, in his tent. And then the people of Israel lose the battle, 
And the Lord goes looking for the couple, and it narrows down to tribe, and then group, and then finally family, and there's Achan and his family, and the Lord asks for him to be put to death because of this sin here. And although it's not identical, I do think that there's an allusion back to that very story because Ananias and Sapphira, in a similar way, had promised to give something devoted to the Lord, and they what? Kept back some of it for themselves. It would have been no problem had they not said it was all for the Lord. But when you devote it all to the Lord and then you keep some of it back by lying, that right there is very similar to the sin of Achan, and they also uh, receive the penalty of death at this point. Back to Acts chapter 5, a couple other things that are significant. Verse 3, but Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit to keep back, same word, for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? Do you understand, and I think you do, do you understand that when we are living our daily life as a Christian, you know, I'm talking mundane, you're at home and you, you're like, we got to vacuum, we got to do the dishes, we got to do the clothes, we got to take care of this. When you are living your mundane life, you're doing homework, you're doing work from, from school, whatever it may be, during your mundane life, you're changing the 37th diaper of the day, <laughs> when, you're, when you're living your mundane life, you are part of a cosmic battle that is going on. Paul says we war, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers and world rulers and spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. And there's, there are fiery darts coming at us, and we must extinguish them and defend against them. Mundane temptations to sin are part of a cosmic battle that involves a real Satan and real demons. And here, they're giving in as a couple to a deliberate lie. Their deliberate choice, premeditated to go lie to the apostles, was them giving their heart over to Satan. They allowed Satan to fill their heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. So, even on the most mundane moments of your life, do you see that you're part of a cosmic battle and that sin and righteousness, that pursuing the flesh and pursuing the spirit are matters of great consequence? that they really matter. I mean, just think about this. If I choose to neglect the Lord for the next several days, my attitude will be affected toward my wife, toward my children, and toward my students at school. I guarantee you. I will be more argumentative in class. I will be more sharp with my words if a student disagrees with something I say. I will be less gracious, and I will begin to do little moments of harm towards my students, my family, my kids, and that accumulates over time and has massive detrimental effects down the way, right? However, if I pursue the Lord, and the Lord softens my heart on that daily basis where He renews me day by day, and I go back into life, and I love my wife better. And I love my children a little bit. I'm a little more patient with my children. I'm a little bit more compassionate towards my students. That is going to reap positive benefits. And those things affect large outcomes. I mean, just think how your parents treated you, whether it was good or bad for the most part, did it affect your life? Just think about that. Some of you are still dealing perhaps with some of the detrimental effects of, of having an absent parent or having what it, whatever it may be perhaps something else, or maybe you, have, you had wonderful parents and you are reaping still benefits from that, from the way they shaped you as a young child. Just think about the effects and consequences of that. Where does that come from? That comes from you and I winning a thousand little battles where a real Satan and real demons are involved and real sin and real flesh and real world are involved, and there's a temptation. 
And do you give in or do you fight? And does that affect things downstream that go beyond anything we could imagine? Yes. So this decision, which probably seemed to Ananias and Sapphira as no big deal. But let's be honest here. They're giving a large portion of money to the church for free. Just a bad, they just, we, no one asked us. We sold a field, and we're giving you the majority, probably, of the income just for fun, just because we, we're trying to help people. And all we're doing is fudging on the number. Couldn't someone call that a white lie? I mean, we're given a large amount of money, a big amount of money, and we're just lying about the exact number so we can keep a little bit for ourselves. It's no big deal. And they agree together. Do they probably realize what's going to be the consequences of their action? That they are giving in to Satan himself, and that they are about to be struck down by God in judgment for this seemingly no big deal kind of thing. Another point on this. If you look here, doesn't this remind you of Judas? In Luke 22, Judas filled Satan. Excuse me, Satan filled Judas backwards. Satan filled Judas. And what does Judas do? Judas takes the money and he betrays Jesus. I do think Luke is allowing us to compare in some way these two actions. Judas was not a believer, so perhaps that doesn't look as good for Ananias and Sapphira. I'm not sure, but you see here something Judas-like in the early church. Another just technical point here. Look at verse 3. This is kind of a side point, but it's very important. Here he says, Satan has filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit. And look at verse, the end of verse 4. You have not lied to man, but to God. And then verse 9, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? This is one of the clearest passages where the Holy Spirit is called God. Lying to the Holy Spirit is lying to God. And it's also lying to the Spirit of the Lord. The Holy Spirit is a person. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not a force, not an it. The Holy Spirit is a he. And the Holy Spirit can be grieved. Only persons can be grieved. The Holy Spirit here is God. And to lie to the Holy Spirit is to lie not to man, but to God. Next point here. When we lie to a person, we are always lying to God. Because the most offended party when I sin is God. The greatest evil about my sin is not the way it hurts you or someone else, although that is evil. The greatest problem with my sin is the way it dishonors the God who made me. So, they probably weren't thinking like this, but their decision, which seemed to them probably still pretty radically generous, was a deliberate lie inspired by Satan and against God the Holy Spirit. That is how serious it was. I'll just say this, we all sin in many ways. Didn't James say that? We all stumble in many ways. A perfect man could perfectly bridle his tongue, but even James says he hasn't arrived there. Paul says, I have not yet obtained perfection. He's still struggling, but the deliberate, premeditated choice to choose to sin as a believer is an extraordinarily dangerous thing to do. To say, I know that this is going to be a sin, and I am going to do it. You know, it could be something as, you know, maybe, I don't know what age range this might affect, but maybe you say, okay, I, I'm going to go to a party on Friday night, and I'm going to drink, and I'm going to drink as much as I want, and that's Friday night, and it's, okay, it's Sunday, and I'm, you think of that ahead of time, you plan for it, and you move toward it, and you do it. That is deliberate 
premeditated, willful sin. And that all sin is serious, but that is extraordinarily serious. And those who continue in a life of deliberate sin, deliberate, willful sinning, will not ultimately be saved. Hebrews 10 says, if we deliberately keep on sinning after receiving a knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire who will consume the adversaries. So, we must take our sin seriously. No one handles their sin perfectly, but we must take our sin seriously. Another thing that you can notice in this passage, they commit this sin as a couple. I thought about that this week. Listen, there are plenty of times a husband sins and has nothing to do whatsoever with his wife. It's not her fault. It's just he sinned. And there are plenty of times a wife sins and has nothing, no, the husband did not sin, but just the wife sinned. But living together in such close association with one another as you do in a marriage, there is going to be a particular possibility of couples developing sinful patterns or sinful habits or whatever it may be together as a couple. It's not always going to be the case, but here it was the case that together they deliberately chose this sin as a couple, and that's something also that we must watch out for. Just to, I promise there's good news coming in a moment, but this is heavy stuff, and I don't, I, listen, if every week is just kind of happy, 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 then we're not being honest with the text, because some texts are, are very comforting, and some texts hit you just directly in the face when you read them. This passage right here about wipes you out when you, when you hear this passage, so I, I think it should have a sense of the, of the heaviness. Just to give a, a little tiny illustration, I'm just noticing this because we have little children, so there could be a temptation as a parent you know that your, your, your child's asking you something of no real significance, and you know that if you kind of say it not quite true, a little bit deceptive, they're not going to get upset, but if you say directly the truth, they might start crying, and you just don't want to deal with crying, and so you might be tempted to sort of manipulate the truth to keep you. That's lying. That's not, that, that is a serious deal that we need to not do. We, we, need, we need to not lie to our children, even if it seems for the sake of a small convenience, and it's just a white lie, it's no big deal. Not, that's not okay. We should be truth seekers and truth speakers as Christians. We should love the truth. We should obey the truth. We should submit ourselves to the truth. We should be people who love what is true. Okay, so let me continue painting the scene here. After the husband dies, he is taken out, and for three hours, people take him outside the city. Burials always happened outside the city, and they bury him. And then right around the time they're coming back from that burial, uh, Sapphira comes in. Now listen, God gave her three more hours than He gave the husband, and Peter actually gives her a chance to come clean and to be honest. Look again at verse 7. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, tell me whether you, that word you is plural, whether you both, sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young men came in, they found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard these things. It's interesting, the first time Luke actually uses the word church in Acts is in this context in verse 11. And it wasn't just fear in the church, it was also fear among unbelievers in the area who heard about these things. 
Look at verse 13. None of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. There was a sense of fear, and yet also many were being converted in verse 14. It's a unique church growth strategy here. Uh, two members of the church die, and then the church membership is just bursting at the seams because people keep getting added in verse 14 to the number uh, of those. Now, what, what, just big picture here, what are we to do with the fact that God in this text just strikes two people dead for lying, just strikes them dead for lying? Uh, I've been in I've, you know, high school Bible, these questions come up all the time. A couple weeks ago in class, this question came up just before Thanksgiving. Some of the guys in one of my classes were wondering about passages like this. What, what are we to make of a God who just seems to, as one person said years ago, uh, it sounds like... Uh, now, this is blasphemous, but I, this is what they said. They said. It sounds just like God is some kind of angry uh, uncle who you see who maybe just flies off the ra- handle and just kind of loses his temper randomly and just starts hurting people. That's what God sounds like here, just randomly striking out. Well, if you remember throughout the Bible, there are moments, instances where God does just in the moment bring judgment instantly for sin. Leviticus 10, Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron put strange fire on the altar, they are struck dead instantly. And Aaron goes to Moses and said, you know, what is going on here, my two sons? And it's, Moses said, the Lord has spoken before all the people, I will be regarded as holy. And it says, Aaron held his peace. Joshua 7 with Achan, we looked at. 2 Samuel 6, they're transporting the ark not the way you're supposed to transport the ark. You're supposed to have poles, supposed to be carried in a specific way. They're not paying attention to the instructions. They put it on an ox cart. One of the oxen trips. The cart tilts sideways. The, the ark begins to slide off the ark, and there's a man named Uzzah who is walking alongside the ark to help protect it. He probably means nothing but to help at this moment. He sees the ark about to slide off the ox cart because one of the ox stumbles, so the whole thing tilts one way. And as the ark is about to fall into the mud or the dirt, he reaches out to steady the ark and puts it back on the cart to stabilize it. And it says the anger of the Lord was kindled against Uzzah, and Uzzah died next to the, next to the ark. And it says, David became angry and became afraid at what had happened that day when God struck Uzzah. Second Chronicles 26, uh, King Uzziah uh, walks into the temple and gets leprosy and ends up dying as a leper, and on it goes. First Corinthians 11, you know, people will say, that's the Old Testament, not the New Testament. You know what testament we're in today? This is the New Testament. This is after the resurrection of Jesus. This is the church age that we are still part of. And First Corinthians 11 says... Some of you are misusing the Lord's table. That, Paul says, some of you are misusing the Lord's supper. That is why some of you, the members of the church, are weak or ill, and some of you have died. So even in the Corinthian church, the misuse and abuse of the Lord's supper led to the death of multiple members of the Corinthian church. That's in the New Testament era. So what what are we to do with passages like this in Scripture? What, what, What are we to do with these? God seems harsh and it seems random. Well, here here is the only way I know to really talk about this is to go back a second. In the Garden of Eden, how many sins were capital offenses? All of them. Any. You sin, you eat the fruit, death. In Ezekiel, it says the soul that sins shall die. In Romans, it says the wages of sin is death. Now, now, get this. God has given you and I the gift of physical life. 
However old you are or young you are, God has given you every single breath. In Him we live and move and have our being. He gives to all men breath and life and everything. Every breath you've ever taken, every heartbeat you've ever enjoyed, whether conscious of it or not, is an undeserved gift from God to you. Every single moment. And every single day we sin, and God lovingly continues to be patient. His kindness leads us to repentance, and He gives us more and more life and more and more breath. And if the Lord God decides to stop my heart or to end my life, He is not taking from me something that He has no right to take. Instead, He is simply choosing to stop giving me a gift that I never deserved in the first place. God is doing no one any wrong if He were to take my life or yours today. But what really gets to me here is this. People get sometimes offended by what God does in this passage because of the supposedly unjust death. Was the death of Ananias and Sapphira unjustified from God's perspective? No. Neither is any human death. And what what I told my students a few weeks ago is I said, I I understand why you're offended, but, but listen, if you want to be offended by a death that's unjust in the Bible, it's the crucifixion of God's Son, the Lord Jesus. Because the only unjust death in the Bible, the the one that should really shock us and knock us off our heels, that death already happened, and it happened 2,000 years ago when Jesus died in your place, bearing the sins that you've committed under God's judgment, so that if you trust Him, you'll never have to deal with the consequences of your sin, and I'll never have to deal with the consequences eternally of mine, because Jesus bore God's wrath. So, the ultimately unjust suffering took place there, and if we turn and trust Christ, we will be forgiven and accepted before a holy God for all of eternity. So, I think that oftentimes we need to change our perspective. Every day is a gift of grace, and sometimes because God gives us so much grace, we start thinking grace is what we are owed. And the second we think grace is what we are owed, we have flipped everything backwards in our mind. God doesn't owe you another heartbeat, another breath, another meal, another good night's sleep. God doesn't owe you any of that. And yet, how many thousands of those, tens of thousands, has He given to you? And if they were to stop today, God has done me no wrong. But God continues to lavish us with His grace and to invite us to the cross of Christ where we can be forgiven, we can be accepted, and we can eternally have fellowship with God. Yes, He is holy, but He is also gracious. And if we will repent and be honest with our sin, God will be so kind and tender with us as He was to so many in the early church. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, I pray that You would help all of us to be honest with our sin, that we would confess our sin, that we would not hide our sin that by your grace and with other, other people's help, if necessary, that we would fight against our sin. God, I pray for anyone in this room who right now in this moment is hiding some kind of secret sin in their life, refusing to confess it to anyone at all. They're just holding on to it. God, I pray that you would convict that person and that they would go to someone that they can trust and that they would confess their sin. That they would seek transformation, accountability if necessary and that you would do a great work uh, in all of our lives to not want to have a reputation and to seek a reputation at the expense of the truth that is not actually accurate 
but you would help us to humble ourselves, to admit failures, and to seek your grace in the restoration process. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.